You're about to hear a sermon that was preached for the people of Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois. Sacred City Moline is a gospel-centered missional church that aims to make disciples plant churches and renew the cities. If you want to hear more about Sacred City Church or become part of what we're doing here, we encourage you to visit us at scmoline.com. Now, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy this sermon. Today's passage comes from sections of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Excuse me, Genesis 1 and 3. Hear the word of the Lord from the word of God. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. Genesis 3, 7 through 8. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Allow me a moment to go before the Father in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your grace and your kindness and to celebrate um, the the sacrament of baptism together, to to rejoice with heaven as uh, a chai begins his new life with Christ, marking the beginning of, of faithfulness in his life, the work that you've done to bring him to that point, and for these, these little ones who will be um, nurtured in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would bless that. And for now, Lord, as we come to your word, we, we ask that you would open up our ears to hear from you, um, that this wouldn't just be some, some random text or, or random book that some random dudes threw together, but this is the word of God, God speaking to his people. Would we hear it as such this morning? Would you soften our hearts to receive your word of hope? And Lord, I pray that you would help me to to think clearly, to speak with clarity and precision. Would you help me to speak the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth so that the church would be edified and that some, some may come to faith this day. We ask this for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, if you're joining us today for the first time, um, you're coming in at a very exciting spot, maybe a little bit of uh, awkward spot. We have been going for the last nine or so weeks through Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, um, which is the beginning of the entire narrative of Scripture. Um, you open up your Bible, the very first page, once you get past the table of contents, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And, and the reason why our, our Scripture reading this 
this morning was sort of broken up is because these passages show us, it provides for us the meta-narrative, basically the, the big picture structure of the entirety of the Bible. And the fact that we have creation, a good, uncreated creator creating all things out of nothing. He says it's good, it's very good, as he gets to creating man and woman in his image. By Genesis chapter 3, we see that creation is distorted as sin enters into the world. Now, instead of this flourishing, this beauty that the world was intended to have at all times and in all places, the sin enters, distorts, and the curse of sin ruins things. And then in Genesis chapter 3, what we see is a promise of redemption from the very beginning. Even though God had created things good and sin corrupted them, from the very beginning, God had a plan to restore that which he created. And last week, obviously, was Easter, Resurrection Sunday, and what we did was we celebrated the fulfillment of this promise in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, this this meta-narrative of creation, fall, redemption, and then restoration is, is what we have been um, going into Genesis 1, 2, and 3 to, to, uh, to for the purpose of, of approaching some really hot topic cultural issues that are really for us, important for us as Christians to, my, map, to wrap our minds around today. And so with that framework, over the next few weeks, we're going to look at how this story, creation, fall, redemption, works out in different settings, specifically with masculinity, with femininity, with sexuality, and in the home. We're going to look at God's creational design, what God intended from the very beginning for his creation to embody how sin has distorted those and created counterfeits of masculinity, femininity, sexuality, and and homes that are disordered, and how the grace of Jesus Christ doesn't change us into a completely new direction, but the grace of Jesus Christ is meant to restore nature as it was intended. That is what resurrection life is. Looks like that's we're, we're people of the resurrection. We're celebrated baptism. You've been buried with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. And in resurrection life, we go back to uh, what the creative order was like through the power, redemptive power of Christ and the Holy Spirit. And so what I'm going to do today is I'm going to start with what might be the most contentious topic. What might be the topic that is most Um, under attack in our day and age today, and that is the topic of masculinity. With late waves feminism, hostility towards masculinity has become mainstream. So much so that when you talk about masculinity, one of the first things that goes in your mind is the idea of toxic masculinity. That, that, that combination of words of masculine, toxic masculinity joined together has become almost the default. When you hear that word, that's immediately what you think of. And this term is used wholesale, even on, on the versions of masculinity that the Bible promotes, that the Bible says this is what godliness, godly males look like. There, there's a, a shadow, there's a shade casted on those things. And with this term of toxic masculinity, there's been a, um, it communicates the idea that men are poisonous, that men are torrents of destruction. 
And the fix in this worldview, this, this secular worldview, is to deny the creational norm, to temper down masculinity so it sen- essentially becomes more feminine, that, that it loses the creative distinction as God had planned for it to embody. Now, I say all that, and I, I also want to recognize that there are certainly bad and evil men that are in the grip of sin. And and in the same way that men are in the grip of sin and are destructive, you can say the same thing is true about women. When masculinity or femininity is not in line with God's word, how how he commands us to be, it becomes destructive. And whether it's action or inaction, it will result in hurt and destruction, which is the opposite of God's design for both masculinity and femininity. And in this case, men who are in this category of being destructive, they must be instructed. They must be rebuked for their sin and called to repentance. Not a repentance of their masculinity, but a repentance of counterfeit masculinity their distorted version of it. Now, what happens when we lose a biblical definition of masculinity, when we veer away from the word of God and what it instructs men to do or to be like, what then backfills that is either arrogant men, prideful men, who whip up their own definition, or on the other side, you allow angry women to define it. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go to the word of God. We're going to go and see what God has to say about this very important topic. And, and the more that we expose ourselves to the word of God, the more what happens when, when culture bombards us with this idea of, of being a man is bad or, or masculinity is nothing but toxic, you finally get men who know the word of God, who know what God says, who can scoff and dismiss the falsehoods that are being peddled. Now, Men who are grounded in the word of God have this capacity, but young boys who are vulnerable to lies are very much susceptible. And one thing that the church has failed to do over the last few decades is help young boys, young men, figure out what it means to be a man of God, as the word of God says. And when that happens, when the church loses that responsibility or drops the ball there, what happens then, you get this lie of what masculinity is that circulates for decades, and eventually what we see now are the effects of defunct masculinity, of counterfeit masculinity. It leads to a fatherhood crisis, a a manhood crisis, which we are in right now. It leaves us with globs of effeminate men, or globs of man-child dependence, boys who never stepped into manhood. Now, our only hope to cut through the lies, to cut through the degradation of masculinity is to return to God's word. God's word not only contains for us the way of salvation, but the way of life. 
It instructs us in matters of masculinity and femininity that regardless of if you've been created man or female, it shows us how to honor God with our bodies, with our personhood, which is engendered. Now, one of the other pitfalls that we see in the church is that when the church starts talking about masculinity, it tends to go, talk about masculinity in a feminine way. Here's what I mean by this. Oftentimes, when, when somebody gets up to preach about biblical masculinity, the first thing that they'll go to is talking about emotions, how men need to be more emotionally available or, or be better communicators or, or figure out relationships and, and get things together in that regard. And so it very much takes the side of women and says, men, you need to adapt to them. And while there's a place to talk about emotions, about communication, about relationship, to, to hone in, for that to be the very first place that we go in talking about masculinity, we miss the heart of masculinity. We miss the core of what it means to be a man of God. Those things are important, but not primary. And what I want to do today with my little bit of time is to hone in, to, to focus in on what is the primary trait, what is the key, what is the heart of biblical masculinity. And I can sum it up in one word here. At the heart of biblical masculinity is responsibility. The heart of biblical masculinity is responsibility. Oops. You've got a responsibility for and a responsibility to. You have a responsibility for three things, your place or position, your property, and your people. Right? God has given you a place. He's appointed you to a position. He's given you property. He's given you people under your umbrella of care that God has assigned to you that they are your responsibility. And for those things, you have a responsibility to see to the care of those people, places, and things. You have a, a responsibility to create order. Excuse me. You have a responsibility to first care for, a responsibility to create order, and third, a responsibility to cultivate growth. I'm not pulling this out of thin air. I'm not going to um, the best books on masculinity that Barnes & Noble has to offer. I guess I don't know if anybody shops at Barnes, but maybe Amazon. I'm not pulling this from those places. What I'm doing is I'm going back to the word of God. And actually, all of these things are embedded in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. When God says, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion. So here, here's God saying, I'm going to grant them authority. I'm going to give them responsibility. And then he's going to attach a domain, specific things that his dominion is supposed to be over. Let us let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then, and then this goes into what's known as the cultural mandate. And God blessed them 
And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on earth. Now here you see it. Now you see there's, I guess if you go into Genesis chapter two, it gets even more specific where God creates man and places him in the garden. So God says to Adam, I have placed you. This is your sphere of responsibility in the garden. Now what you're supposed to do with that, you're supposed to care for it. Tend the garden, he says. See to its flourishing, cultivate it. Make it more beautiful, enhance what's already been placed there. And then later on, God puts a woman in there. And with the command to be fruitful and multiply, we know that babies will come later on down the road. So you see the place, you see the people, but then there's also this property. There's things that belong to them that they are specifically supposed to take care of. Now, while the creational mandate has been given to both men and women, there is a unique emphasis on who does what. Adam was created from the ground for the ground, and the woman was created from the man for the man. So the man has this orientation towards the cultivation of the ground, towards the project that God has given. That's his emphasis. That's where his primary responsibility lies in in seeing to the cultural mandate and advancing that mission. And the woman is to be his helpmate, right? She plays, we'll get into that next week, talking about femininity. What does it mean for, for Eve to be his helpmate. Now we see God appointing the property, the place, the people. We, we see that Adam is charged to care for, to cre- create order in subduing these things and cultivating growth. We see that dominion has been granted and the domain has been established, the arena in which he is to exercise his God-given authority. Now as we talk about responsibility, The first step in taking responsibility is knowing what you're responsible for, which is what God has done. He has defined what it is that Adam, the man, is responsible for. Adam was given the garden. He was given Eden. He he was appointed domain over that area, dominion over that area. Adam was given Eve, that very first wedding ceremony when, when God brought the woman to the man. And so we see both the garden of Eden and the woman named Eve are both presented to him by God. In this reveals the responsibility of Adam toward the ground and toward his people. This is the perimeter that God draws. He says, this is your responsibility. This is your domain. This is what you need to own. You're responsible for this. His realm Now, in the same way as God appoints Adam to take care of Eden and his his bride, God appoints men to realms today. God gives men responsibility over specific areas, over, over very specific place, property, and people. God in his divine providence has given men charge to rule on his behalf as vice regents. This includes things like your body, your attitude, your libido, your job, your family, your home, your car, your wealth, your church, your neighborhood, and anywhere God has placed you, this falls under your sphere of responsibility in one way or another. 
Now, there's various degrees of how much responsibility is really yours, and that's something that we could work through in very individual, specific things with a missional community or a fight club, but God has given you responsibility in every realm for you to care for it, to create order, and to cultivate flourishing in these places. Now, in the younger years, the load is smaller. I don't know if we've got any boys left in here. Young, young men, young future men. God has given you domain. You have a responsibility over things like your room to create order, to care for the things that God has given you. You have a responsibility to do well in your role as a student, right? To do schoolwork, whether your mom's your teacher or you've got another teacher. You might even have responsibility like taking care of a pet, right? Making sure it's fed and clean space to exist. Like in these early stages of boyhood, what you're doing is you're cutting your teeth so that one day you can grow and become a godly man who takes responsibility. And as God matures you, as you're tested in this calling, God increases your realm of responsibility. Scripture says that one who is faithful with little will be faithful and trusted with much. That God will provide and expand the territory of your responsibility. So you, young men, can expect that the older you get, the more weight you will carry in life as a godly man. This is a good thing. God gave you broad shoulders to carry heavy loads. Now, soft men, which is a biblical category here. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to, to nitpick um, a certain style of men. Soft men is a biblical category compared to hard men. Hard men take responsibility. They carry heavy loads. Soft men tend to shy away from that. And these soft men will bemoan the reality that as they grow older and mature, that there is this increased weight of responsibility that rests upon them. And if they do not mature, what will happen is that they insist somebody else takes care of it. Instead of stepping into the responsibility that, that is a privilege, it's an honor from God to have this responsibility, you say, well, I don't know. I don't know. I don't want anything to do with it. Soft men will shy away from the heavy loads that come. Now, I do want to acknowledge the reality that as the load increases, there will be more challenge. It doesn't get easier, folks. It doesn't get easier. In fact, this is one thing I always hear it. You know, I love college students. I love you guys. But, you know, um, you, you get a, a young person, I'm in college, so busy, my life is so hectic, it's crazy, crazy, crazy. And it's like, just wait. It, I, I don't mean to belittle that, but your responsibility will continue to grow and grow and grow, and the load gets heavier. So this means that as it grows, there certainly will be challenges. There certainly will be difficult. In fact, this is part of the curse that we see in Genesis 3. That when God issues the curse, that sin, the effects of sin over the created world, one of the challenges is now your job becomes extra hard. By the sweat of your brow, you will toil for your food. Thistles and thorns will pop up to complicate your work. Now, that doesn't mean that you know, everybody's meant to be a gardener, but you're going to find this. 
In every career path, in every sphere of responsibility, there are going to be obstacles that you face, challenges that are induced by the reality that sin is in the world. And with the challenges and the difficulty, you can count on fatigue. You can count on the reality that one day you'll say, man, I don't, I don't know if I have what it takes. I'm so tired. My back is so sore. Now in these moments where we feel the weight of that, we need to not forget that every time God offers us uh, an expansion of our domain, it is a gift from him. It's a gift, not a curse. It's a gift from God to step in on God's behalf and see to the care of the, the, the creation of order and the cultivating of those places for the glory of God. It is an honor to, bestowed, to, to be bestowed this responsibility. This is the way that you serve and lead on God's behalf. As if God is, is working through you to bring out restoration in these places. Now we cannot, men, we cannot grumble when God adds to our plate. Yes, it's hard. Yes, you're tired. But God gave this to you. It's your responsibility. Now let me just take a sidebar here. I know I spoke to, to the young men in the room already. Um, but dads, part of your responsibility is helping your young men learn to shoulder more responsibility. Part of your responsibility as a dad is to help your boys know that things are hard and by God's grace, you can continue to press on in faithfulness enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit. You have a responsibility to help your sons see that the expansion of responsibility is a gift from God and equip them with the means so they can successfully do that thing. So we've established that, that there are people, places, and things that men are responsible for, but now we need to understand what it means to exercise our responsibility. What, to what end are we using our responsibility? Well, this gets us back to the four, that we are to rule in a way that cares for, that has a heart for those things in our possession, that cares for those things. We are to rule in a way that creates order. Out of, out of the raw materials that God has placed before us, we are to subdue it. We are to extract the hidden glory of those things. And we are to cultivate what is ours. We are to see the improvement of the things that have been entrusted to us. And the way that we do this is to love these things the way God loves us. To love these things, these people, places, and things to life. To love these things in a way that, that entices beauty to abound in a way that extracts the hidden glory, in a way that, that causes things to flourish and become what they were truly meant to be. This is the way that we are to exercise our responsibility to that end. Now let me break this down and get into a few specifics here. I've got a couple examples. How does this work out? If you, okay, 
if you have, whether you rent or own, you have responsibility for your home, your place. You have a responsibility to pay the bills. You have a responsibility to fix what's broken. You have a responsibility to see too that the place where you and your family live is sanitary, that it is a, uh, a haven of safety, and that there's something of, of the glory of God that demonstrates beauty. Now, these things fall under your responsibility, men. And if you don't know how to do, if you don't know how to fix the sink, then that doesn't mean you just leave it alone and, well, because that'll create more issues. We'll talk about that later on. But if you don't know, it's still your responsibility. You either, one, figure it out. You, you, you go, to, um, go to your dad and ask your dad, how do I do this? You don't have a dad? Find a, a father figure in the church. How do I do this? YouTube might be helpful. I'm not saying it's not, but relationships are, the, are going to be better. But, but it's your responsibility to figure it out. And if you can't figure it out, then you go to a man, or it could be another, it could be a woman, but you go to somebody who is an expert in that area. It's your responsibility to get that job done, to get that thing fixed. So if you need to, go to an expert and you delegate your responsibility, not your responsibility, delegate the work that needs to be done for you to, to fulfill your responsibility. Get an expert in there. So that's home. What about, what about your place? Let's talk about... Um, if you have a job, you have been placed in a specific area. God has placed you in a workplace, in a specific sector of the workforce, not just to, to make a living, which is part of providing for your family, um, but to actually serve the Lord in your vocation, in the work you do. It may be glamorous, it may not be glamorous, but regardless of what it is, you have designated duties in your workplace. And so for you to shoulder the responsibility means that you do those responsibilities, even the ones that you don't like, but whatever's been given to you, you do them. You see to the execution of those things, and you do so not grumbling, not bemoaning what it is you need to do, but you do it with a glad heart as unto the Lord. You solve the problems presented to you. You complete the assigned task. And in this, you use your agency, which God has given you. And by doing that, you bring honor and glory to God. Now, what about another place like the church? And when I say church, I'm not talking about just this building. I'm talking about the family of God, right? The people of God in a specific locale. What does it look like to have responsibility in the church? Now, you might have a, a specific role. Right? You might be on the worship team. You might be serving kids' ministry. You might be on the hospitality team. You might be doing something, anything. Well, to, to step into this responsibility is that you do those things with excellence. If you're, on the, if you're in the band, you practice. Right, that's what, I've got, a, I've got a job to lead the people of God in worship by using my voice or my gifting somehow. One of the ways that you do that is by practicing. So when you get in here, you can do it well. Kids ministry. 
Okay, you're gonna invest in our, our, the next generation of, of, uh, of, of kingdom mover and shakers. Maybe pick up the lesson. Look over it. Study, prepare, so that when you go into that thing, you've been given the, the responsibility to care for this specific classroom, you can do it well. Now, there are specific assignments to um, volunteers and, and even uh, people who have jobs within the church and, and fulfilling those duties, but there's even these, a general responsibility to one another that we have as Christians, a responsibility to love and to serve side by side. Now, whether that means jumping in on a specific ministry or being part of having a responsibility that when you see a new face in the crowd, you have a responsibility to be warm and inviting and practice hospitality towards them. All right, this is what it means to be part of a, a, a covenant community, to be invitational, to be warm and hospitable. This isn't just reserved for the hospitality team and the volunteers that are getting coffee ready. This is something that's shared between the whole church. There's this responsibility that we have. So we've seen the responsibility in property, right, your home. You've seen it in, in, in your job space, the church. But we're also responsible for people, too. That you, men, have a responsibility for your family. They are to be your primary assignment, where most of your energy, most of your attention, most of your resources gets pointed to this end. Because nobody else has been assigned your family. God has appointed you to lead, to shepherd, to care for your family. But beyond family, then you have the extended family. Right, men, you have a responsibility to think of how am I going to care for my parents in their elderly years? How am I going to care for my, my nieces and nephews if, if a ball gets dropped somewhere? How am I going to care for them? And then, and then thinking even further to the, the extended family, the family of God. How am I going to meet the needs of those who are, have been brought into a season where, where their resources are meager? And they've been threatened with um, eviction. How, are, how am I going to take responsibility for those things to serve and to bless and to see to the care for, the creation of order for, and the cultivation of these people? And this, of course, keeps going. The, the waves keep going to friends, to neighbors, people who are in your proximity. The responsibility, you just need to know, what, what is it I'm responsible for? But again, going back, the primary responsibility is for your family. First Timothy 5.8 says that one who does not provide for their family has denied their faith and is worse than an unbeliever. See, part of our responsibility is to make real physical provisions for our family, to make sure there's food on the table to make sure that, that they are protected from the elements, whether it's shelter or threats or, or I think even more so, to protect your people from false doctrines and plausible arguments, as the Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians 2. We have a responsibility to just every facet from the physical, the emotional, relational, to the spiritual well-being. That's our domain, men. 
And our job then is to cultivate our people to bring out the best in them, to make them fruitful, to, to give them, to pave a way for joy for them, a vision for their life, that it's meaningful, that God has a plan to use them to help them see what God's work, to where, where God's working. Now, you cannot cultivate your people without thinking about discipleship. You cannot cultivate your people without asking the question, what is it that my people most worship? When you ask that question, if it's not Jesus, if it's not the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the resurrected Savior, then our duty as men is to squash the idols, to identify and to dismantle the altars that we have made for the idols of our hearts, whether that's comfort, convenience, or our, our own safety and money or, or places or, or whatever those things are, sexuality. You go down the list of anything that is good that gets elevated to a status of God is in competition now with worship the worship that is due to God. And it's our job as shepherds of our family to identify and to address those things both in your wife and in your kids. This means not just being a, a brute laborer who punches the clock and brings home a paycheck, but a guy who is, uh, cares for your people, who is sensitive to their frame and their needs, that you can speak truth at the heart level in a way that they most need. It means bringing them around the word of God. Let's study the word together. Let's hear what God has to say. In family worship, we, we sing and we pray. This looks like formal settings where you're instructing and offer discipline, and it means informal setting where this stuff happens on the fly. It is your responsibility, men, to cultivate your people. Now, this is where the biblical concept of headship comes into play here. We've talked about this a few weeks back, but the idea that God has appointed the man, Adam, to be responsible for his domain, his people, his place. See, you men have a responsibility. God has given you authority that you would lead well on his behalf. And your leadership is meant to be an act of self-giving love. The reason why you're so tired as the, the, the responsibility piles on your shoulders is because you are pouring yourself out for those people, places, and things that you are expending yourself so that when you get to the grave, you have not hoarded your heartbeats, you have not held on to your strength, but you have given it freely as God has instructed you to do so. In other words, you've led from the grave. And in this, we portray to our people the archetypal man, Jesus. The, the Jesus who poured himself out, that laid his life down. We're told there's no greater love than this, than one who would die for his friends. This is, this is what we are meant to lead like, to lead with love. And loving your people is leading your people. 
Now, to the men who demonstrate this ability, more responsibility will come down the line. Right? Um, you even see this in the qualifications for elders. Those who manage their household well are then moving towards quali- being qualified to lead the house of the Lord well. You see this in the church. You can exercise responsibility well. You, you step up into a role of missional community leadership, smaller domain. Right? It, or, guys, your domain expands, but it's, it's still a segment of the church. And then it grows, maybe a deacon over specific ministry, maybe an elder over the entirety of the church. This doesn't just work in the church world, also in the business world. Right? You do well at your job, you're going to find yourself uh, stepping into more responsibility. Hopefully there are other godly dudes up above you who can identify this, these traits that are coming out of your life and say, yep, they're ready for more. Within the business world, it happens within politics, happens within um, civil government. Now it's said that men are like trucks, that they drive straighter with a heavy load. Right? When we see men carrying heavy load, we should say, thank you, God, for this man. Thank you. Because this is not... This is an act of sacrifice. This is an act of, of love for the people, places, and things that they're responsible for. And even though the heavy loads help us drive straighter, each new layer brings its own complexities and gets harder and harder. And regardless of how heavy of a load you carry or how competent you are with your responsibilities, men are always at danger. Men, you... There's never a moment where you're not at danger of dropping the ball. Because we are born into sin as our first father, Adam, who was given responsibility in Eden, and he failed. And his failure brought devastating effects. I, I, his failure made our lives so much harder. And we, since we are born in sin, are often prone to fail like our first father Adam did. And maybe not disrupting the entire uh, trajectory of the cosmos, we still have people who are hurt by our action or inaction when we don't handle our responsibility appropriately. There are devastating effects, devastating consequences when responsibility isn't shouldered properly. And the two main ways that men fail in their calling of responsibility is to either, one, abuse their responsibility, or two, abdicate their responsibility. To abuse your responsibility is to take the authority that God has given you and use that to be self-serving instead of for the service of others. This is where some of the ideas of toxic masculinity comes into play, right? That there is definitely a quadrant of masculinity that is in the abusive vein that needs to be denounced and said, this is a counterfeit, right? This is an abuse of authority, of responsibility. The people under them are not flourishing. But there's another way that the people under the one appointed to be responsible can not flourish. And that is by abdication. Instead of you stepping into the responsibility, you say, I'm going to let somebody else handle it for me. So that your responsibility now becomes someone else's burden. Now both abuse and abdication are antithetical toward biblical masculinity. They have the opposite effect. 
Instead of flourishing, instead of cultivating growth and beauty, what you see is abusive masculinity becomes predatory. It's hurtful. It causes suffering. In the same way, abdication, to to be apathetic or to neglect, causes things to unravel. And in either situation, other men must intervene, must step into somebody else's domain to pick up the pieces, which is shameful to be given responsibility and to throw it away. Now, this can happen wholesale where people totally go off the rails, but, but even more pressing, specifically in the church, is that this is happening in these different quadrants of your life. Maybe your home, maybe your relationship with your wife, maybe at work, maybe your home, your, you know, your, your yard, finances. You can see both abuse or abdication at play, typically at any given moment. And so, men, I need to ask you this question right now. Where are you not taking responsibility? Where has God put something under your care, yet you're not stepping into it the way that you ought to? Where are you buying into a a sub-masculine version of biblical manhood? I want you to think about that. I want you to, to process that. And as you do so, realize this, that to rule your domain well, to take care of the things that have been entrusted to you requires first that you be a self-ruled man. In order for you to rule your house and your job, you must first have the ability to rule your own heart, your own life properly. And right now, if it's not Christ that's ruling your heart, then it's your flesh, then it's sin. See, you on your own cannot rule your life. You you might be be able to temporarily exercise some kind of self-discipline that sort of puts some guardrails up for you so it gives sort of the illusion of that. But when you get to the heart of hearts, you cannot remedy the sinfulness of your heart in and of yourself. Somebody else must do that for you. Somebody else must free you from the yoke of slavery, the flesh, uh, the, the drive of flesh that makes you want to do things that you know you shouldn't do. So that you will not become like your first father, Adam, but rather your second father, Jesus Christ. This is exactly what Jesus did. Jesus comes to restore the cosmos, and one of the facets of this restoration of the cosmos is restoring masculinity. Jesus comes to earth as the archetypal man. Jesus demonstrates what true masculinity looks like. In fact, it's it's interesting that as Jesus stands on trial before Pontius Pilate, what does Pilate say? He says, behold the man. I don't know if he knew what he was saying that moment, but as we look backwards and we see what biblical masculinity looks like and, and Christ fulfilling all things, that was a moment where God was saying something. 
And we see that Jesus steps into true masculinity. In fact, any version of masculinity that is devoid of Jesus is a counterfeit. You cannot be masculine without letting the Lord Jesus Christ rule your heart. Jesus took responsibility for the cosmos. Everything was under his domain. And Jesus laid down his own life. He, he poured himself out so that it could be redeemed. It could be brought back to the creational intention that God had for it all along. He pays the price for sin. He breaks the chains of sin. He liberates the captive so we're no longer bound by sin, death, and the grave or our flesh. But he turns us towards God. Something you cannot do in and of yourself. You cannot do that. You cannot re reposition yourself towards God. Jesus does that for you. And it's in the grace of Jesus Christ that he doesn't take creation in a whole new direction. He's not rewriting the book of masculinity. Jesus restores nature. Grace restores nature. Gospel men are brought back to what masculinity was meant to be. Your family needs a Christ-centered man. Your church needs the kind of men who take responsibility as Christ has taken responsibility. It wasn't his mess to clean up. Jesus had no share in the responsibility for the brokenness of the causes, yet he took it upon himself to do it. So our church needs men that follow in the steps of Jesus in that way. Our city, in fact, to see a kingdom movement happen, a wave of gospel renewal requires men who act like men which is a biblical command. If you go to uh, 1 Corinthians 16, I wish I don't have it pulled up right now, but off the top of my head, it's, he talks about, there's like three things he says. He says, like, be courageous, stand firm in the faith. And he says, act like men. Men, we need to act like men. Not this counterfeit version the culture tells us to be like, but what the Bible tells us. That courageous men responsible men, loving men, leading men. This is the kind of men that we need in this day and age. But the reality is that we cannot get there on our own. We are in desperate need for the Lord to renew our hearts and our minds, for the Spirit of God to empower us to live in this kind of way. And, and every time that we get fatigued and tired, we call out to God for the help, and he delivers, he provides so that we can imitate Christ, our Lord and Savior, the one who shows us what true masculinity is. And this morning, we come to the Lord's table to acknowledge this. Jesus taking responsibility for our sins, his body broken, his blood shed for us. Let us take and eat and reap the benefits of true masculinity. And then men, let us step into that ourselves. Lord God, I, I pray that you would help us. I pray that you would raise up right now uh, a generation and another generation and another generation of men who desire to honor you by obeying your word. That they turn to you, not just um, to hear the word of salvation of how we can get to heaven, but how we can live in a way that glorifies you in the daily life and work, at home, at play, that you would help us to see what is our domain that you'd give us a heart for those things, that we would step into the responsibility that we have, that we'd love them and, and lead in a way that reflects the love and leadership of Christ Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would do this for the good of our city, for the good of this church,
and the joy of all people for your glory and your praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.